we have to know a lot about the body and about injury and tissue mechanics and tissue healing time and all kinds of things in order to really have a clear understanding of what is safe and what is not safe. And without that, I think yoga teachers default to be concerned about safety all the time, even when it is not warranted. You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Libby, welcome back to the podcast. Glad to be back. We're going to talk about safety today, safety and alignment. I think safety is a big topic for yoga teachers. Why do you think that is? I mean, there's some obvious reasons, but I'd love to hear your perspective on it. I think a lot of yoga teachers are concerned about safety because they want to be sure they're doing right by their students. They want their students to have a good experience and feel good. And, and I also think that the concern about safety is born out of really a lack of solid understanding about how the body works and about when it is appropriate to be concerned about safety. We have to know a lot about the body and about injury and tissue mechanics and tissue, you know, healing time and all kinds of things in order to really have a clear understanding of what is safe and what is not safe. And without that, we just, I think yoga teachers default to be concerned about safety all the time, even when it is not warranted. Makes sense. And one of the tools that they use in this quest to keep their students safe is alignment. What are your thoughts on the effectiveness of this tool? Well, alignment, of course, is a huge topic. <laughs> and we would have to unpack what do we mean by alignment and all those things. And what does that word mean? And it means different things to different people. But usually what it means in the context of asana is an idea of a correct way to do something that is the most safe way. And that's usually been something that's just been taught as correct without always having a really clear understanding about the joints involved. Why is this more correct? Why is this safer? And it's all jumbled up and not usually unpacked, but it makes people feel more secure and, and quote, safer to have an answer about correctness. That is very calming for an anxious yoga teacher who may especially be new and really wanting to be doing the right thing, saying the right thing. So yeah, I think alignment sometimes gets pulled in to support a notion about safety, but I don't think they have much in common. I don't think they're related necessarily. We could stack our parts, you know, relative positioning of our parts in all kinds of different ways. And it would be really tough to make the case that one way is safer than another way. That would be a big stretch in most, most circumstances. So let's zoom out a little bit and ask what are the risks of practicing yoga? The biggest risks I would think are going to be your kind of minor aches and pains. That's what most people get. It's certainly people get bigger injuries. They might have joint dislocations, especially their shoulder and maybe their patella. Those are the two things that are going to most commonly dislocate. They might have a fracture if they have osteoporosis, say in their spine, and they have a compression fracture during practice, that's one of the bigger risks in my mind. Or say they have osteoporosis and they have a fall, they have poor balance and they fall during class. Again, that's 
going to be a real outlier situation, but that would be an injury risk. Beyond those things, fractures and dislocations, there really are very few ways someone's going to get very injured in asana practice. Now, let's say they have some sort of cardiovascular disease or they, they end up having a cardiovascular event, you know, in yoga, that would be a very rare outlier as well. But could potentially happen or a neck injury. Let's say someone's slinging themselves up in a headstand without building up to it and being adapted to be able to tolerate that. Those types of things could happen with more extreme postures, of course. I think what I'm hearing is that there are very few things where yoga is specifically dangerous or or causes injury, like the practice itself versus something that would have happened anyway, like a cardiovascular event could happen when you're going up the stairs, could happen when you're you know, chasing after your grandchild or your child. There aren't a lot of injuries that are going to be specific to yoga that wouldn't have happened if you didn't practice. Exactly. There really aren't. It, it's hard for me to come up with more than two or three. I mean, doesn't that speak to the opportunity for yoga teachers to just memorize those two or three? That's not a lot. <laughs> It's really not a lot. It's not a lot. I think those areas where there really is risk, yoga teachers need to understand how to keep their students safer and know what questions to ask of their students. Do you have osteoporosis or or be able to cue if you have osteoporosis in your spine? Modify this posture this way. Those types of cues make sense. If you know someone has a recent hip replacement, for example, that we know they're going to be at more risk for a hip dislocation. That's one of those areas of concern when I have someone who has a total hip replacement, especially in the last year or two. I want to ask some more questions of them. So yoga teachers need to know what questions do I need to ask? Where do I need to be concerned? What type of replacement was it? What was the approach? And what are the movement precautions? Has the surgeon cleared them for all movements? All those questions we need to know. But beyond those things, we are going to be modifying the practice for comfort. That is almost always what we're after is people feeling comfortable. We don't want our students to feel uncomfortable. And unfortunately, just collectively as a culture, I think we have mixed up the notions of discomfort, i.e. pain. I mean, we can unpack pain in a variety of ways and what that means, all the different types of sensations someone might translate as this hurts. We've mixed up that experience with a notion of damage, tissue damage. We're injured. If we have discomfort, it must mean we are injured. And those things are not the same. And I think the mixing up of those things is really the root of our concern about safety in asana. And before we started recording, you were talking about how part of this is because the science of chronic pain is so new that even scientists aren't in full agreement on it. And so we can't expect yoga teachers to be fully educated on the science of pain and chronic pain. We can refrain from making assumptions, especially assumptions that are outside of our scope of practice. My recommendation is to stay connected to your own level of responsibility. When somebody shows up at your class, they have made a decision to attend a movement class. And that means it's on them to get clearance from any medical providers that they're in relationship with 
to say, hey, I'm thinking of taking this class. What do you think? That's their job. Your job is to guide a practice that's the best you know how to do, your best practice that you want to share, and respond to them if they give you information that something's not comfortable, that something is not feeling good. And instead of taking on like, oh my God, it's my responsibility to make everything comfortable for this person, to actually give that back to them and invite them to try things and invite them to see a health professional if whatever they're trying doesn't work. Absolutely. I mean, the bottom line is if someone is having a pain situation and they are bringing that to their yoga teacher for guidance and hoping their yoga teacher can help them understand it and fix it, they're in the wrong place. They need to be encouraged to go see someone who has a skill set to evaluate and diagnose and treat that. And that is not a yoga teacher. Now, the yoga teacher, of course, can offer compassion and, you know, hold a safe space. I'm glad you're here and happy to offer you different options for modification so that the practice feels comfortable for you. That's all I can do. And so I think you're right. The yoga teacher needs to take off that burden and that responsibility and do what they can. I'm assuming we're dealing with grownups here in our classes, right? These are autonomous adult humans who are in charge of their bodies and will learn a lot about how to explore their body in that yoga class. That's of great use for them. But again, if they're really concerned about an injury type of situation, they're in the wrong place. So we're talking a little bit about pain and how complicated and mysterious it is. Can you share the range of what it might mean when somebody expresses that they're experiencing pain? Because it could mean a lot of different things. And we don't need to assume that just because there's pain, there's tissue damage. So let's talk about some of the things it could mean. Yeah, it could just mean so many things. And when someone says this hurts, or I have pain here, we always need to ask follow-up questions. So we can try to get a sense of you know, what's the nature of this in some way? Is this reason for like alarm right now? Usually it's not, especially if they've driven themselves to yoga class and they've walked into the studio. They're probably okay for the most part. There might be achiness, like a dull achiness. Like I always ask people, can you describe the quality of the sensation? And let's step back from a narrative about pain and injury. And let's instead just open up and say, what's the sensation experience here? What's the quality? Where's it located? Does it travel? Is it sharp? Is it pinpointed? Is it well-distributed, achy, throbby? Those types of things. Does it feel cold or like pressure, heat? And really help people describe it in a much more detail. And that gives me a lot more information about what might be going on. And also often puts them at ease. Because now they've got a different perspective about it. They're kind of leaning in, investigating it rather than being scared of it. And when we're scared of something, we just like want it to go away and we lean away from it. Ah, it's, it hurts, it hurts. But now I've asked them to, okay, turn towards it. Let's investigate it because it's not scary, but we want to learn about it. And so I think that invitation to explore sensation and not be afraid of it is really helpful. And I've seen that put a lot of students just at ease, just like that. I really like that because the word pain is so loaded, the word hurt, pain, words like that, but throbbing, itchy, sharp, these words are much less loaded. So we're taking away some of the stories and 
perhaps some of the reactivity and resistance, which is really quite a yogic approach, right? It's like we're going to step back from our assumptions and our immediate reactions, and let's just see what we can learn here. Exactly. Let's see what we can learn, and let's see how it changes over time. Let's observe it as it changes over time and learn about what seems to make it better and what seems to make it worse, because really those are our two big questions when someone's having discomfort. That's how we know what to do to modify. And if we do a movement that makes it worse, guess what? I'm not going to flip out, but I'm also going to stop doing that in a calm way, right? I want to move towards the things that make it feel better and encourage that. I don't need to, in a yoga context, figure out what's going on, but I'm going to follow the information that we're getting from the body and encourage the student to do that so that they have a more comfortable experience. And that's really all we can do in that context. And in that way, pain is a really great teacher for us as yoga teachers, where when we experience pain in our own bodies, that's often our motivation to research and to learn more about that area of the body and to practice in in different ways. But it's the same for our students too, where experiencing pain in their body is one way of being in relationship with their body. And sometimes we have sensations that are on the way to pain that we ignore because we are not in touch with our bodies. And it's only once it crosses that threshold where we experience it as pain that now we're motivated to to notice, to do that investigation that you're talking about. What I've noticed after being on this journey for several decades is that my sensitivity to picking up on those cues earlier has increased. I'm frequently curious, not scared or nervous, but curious about the different sensations that I experience in my body, especially if they're different, if they're novel. That's an invitation for me to pay attention there. And that's a big part of my practice. That's reason enough to practice asana, period. Like in my mind, that is the role of asana in life is to help you develop a relationship with your body, to know yourself in the body kind of way, right? We're taking the body as our inroad to knowing ourselves with asana. And so our ability to slow down and study and get curious about sensations during asana, it will develop our sensitivity so that we pick up on more subtle cues over time and we learn our body even better and better. And that requires stepping back and saying, well, what is the role of asana? You know, if we're not clear on that, then we don't know why we're using it. And then it just leaves us in a really weird place, I think. We don't know what words to say, or we we just have to have a goal. We have to know what is this practice moving us toward? And if the practice is moving us towards inquiry about ourselves, then we don't get confused about there being somewhere we're supposed to be getting to. And it's when we think we're supposed to be getting somewhere in a certain version of the shape or a certain depth of the pose, that type of goal isn't a goal of yoga. And that's where we're going to be led away from our inner experience and our inner kind of picking up on clues. If the practice itself is just to develop that inner sensitivity, then we're really not at risk for pushing it too far. You know, we really get ourselves out of actual safety risk in most cases if we bring our attention back to what function does asana play in the bigger context of yoga. If we turn it into performance, we're missing the boat and now we're headed towards more risk of injury. 
This is really interesting, Libby, because what I'm hearing is that the risk in focusing on asana as achievement is not necessarily that you're aiming for the wrong postures or that, that there's anything wrong with aiming for a specific posture. It is the bypassing of the signals of your body that happens when you're really focused primarily on achieving something. That is precisely it. Yes. That's my view on it. Absolutely. So you can still head for postures as long as achieving them isn't the primary goal. Being in relationship with your body is the primary goal and you will allow your body to guide you into or around or <laughs> away from specific positions and exercises over time through this relationship. That's correct. And then if a student says, I don't want to do a certain posture today because I just don't want to, you know, the, the correct answer is, that's great. You don't ever need a reason to not want to do a posture. As the yoga teacher, I will never push you to do something with your body that doesn't feel right for you. It is your body and you're in charge of it all the time. And if we know that this is all about inquiry, then we're not attached to doing certain postures. It's not about the certain postures. And we can be led by the body's information, just like you described, and follow it and not feel like, you know, we're doing anything, quote, wrong or whatever in, in the pursuit of yoga. I think that's an absolutely great way to approach it. The tricky thing comes up for yoga teachers when especially new students have physical experiences that perhaps are new to them because they, they're getting into their bodies in this, these new ways and they need guidance. They want to know, is this what I should be feeling? Is this safe? Am I doing something wrong? Am I hurting myself? And that's what gets us back into this conundrum of what does the yoga teacher say? How do we unpack this experience of discomfort? And that's when the, the teacher often defaults to these canned notions of safety and alignment that reinforce a bit of fear about the body, actually, and, and are also just misleading. They're just not accurate oftentimes. So it's helpful to know some of the basics about what causes injury. And if someone is injured, what does healing look like? And sometimes when yoga teachers are talking to me and they're really concerned about this stuff, I'll just default to a couple basic concepts. One of them being injury requires a mechanism of injury in most cases. I mean, some people certainly, especially like people with hypermobility syndromes, I'm thinking they actually do get hurt during their sleep, for example. But for most humans, hurting ourselves, actually tissue damage requires something happening. We run into the wall, we twist our ankle, we trip over something, we have a fall, something occurs. We don't just do basic human movements and sustain injury in most cases. And the other piece is that yoga teacher can step back and say, huh, what am I doing in this yoga class? And how does that compare to normal human life? And, and is what we're doing in class really scary and crazy? In some cases, it may be, you know, if we're doing really super intense kind of contortionist style asana, certainly. But in the vast majority of asana classes, I don't think that's what's going on. And we might be doing basic things like lunges, right? And just basic spine movements where out in the world, in any other context during the day, they do not concern us. We don't even think about it. Suddenly we're on our yoga mat and all of a sudden we've got these safety concerns about basic human movements. So I think it's useful for teachers to step back, number one, and say, we need a mechanism of injury, usually to get injured. Number two, 
we're doing basic human movements for the most part in here that are not unsafe. Suddenly we bring in these safety fears in the yoga class. And then number three, if someone is injured, sustains an injury, say breaks something or has a ligament rupture or some surgical repair, what does tissue healing look like? And it looks like about eight weeks. Normal tissue healing time is six to eight weeks for most things up to three, four months for more things like ligaments and things that take longer to heal. But someone doesn't still have the same injury five, 10, 15 years later. Okay. They might still have pain though. And this is where things get really, really tricky. And we have to understand the neuroscience of pain. And this is a new science in the last couple decades that clinicians are still really pushed to learn about. You know, this isn't an area of literacy for, I would say, the the vast majority of clinicians out there, and it should be. But when you think about that, you can think, wow, then we bring that question back into yoga teachers. It's way outside of their knowledge base to really have a solid understanding of pain neuroscience. But that's actually what these conversations get us into. So it's it's hard to say, what should we do about that, right? Now, if yoga teachers are really interested in pain science, absolutely go study it. It's fascinating. I think it's one of the most fascinating topics that will serve them well. But in the absence of that, we can step back and kind of default to some of these basic concepts and know, is there a mechanism in a warrior one? No. Okay. No mechanism of injury. Is this an extreme human movement? Probably not. Doesn't mean there's not discomfort. And when there's discomfort, let's talk about it and frame it in terms of comfort and not in terms of safety so that we don't scare our students about their bodies, but instead encourage them to listen to their bodies and move in the direction of more comfort. So if we are separating out injury from discomfort and pain, right? Where we recognize that injuries are pretty rare and they're short-lived. Let's talk about some of the other reasons that folks experience pain in yoga, such as inflammation, irritation. What else does cause pain? Yeah, inflammation is a great example. It could be a local inflammation of, say, a tendon that's called tendonitis. You know, some people get kind of the tennis elbow or the golfer's elbow. That's a great common example of a tendonitis where it might hurt to do certain movements. Well, don't do those movements. You know, in a yoga context, again, the yoga teacher's job is not to diagnose that or to treat that. It is to move in the direction of comfort and suggest that that student go get that evaluated and treated by someone who's qualified to do that. There's that localized inflammation that might be going on in that case. Bursitis is another good example of that. These are situations where being in discomfort isn't dangerous, right? If a student has hip bursitis, for example, and something in yoga class bothers their hip, it isn't dangerous. It's just not what we're after, right? It's uncomfortable, but it's not going to damage them. Could it aggravate the bursitis? Sure. It will aggravate the bursitis. Is it going to destroy their hip or like destroy their bursa? No, it's just aggravating. It's not going to help them, you know, but we don't need to be afraid of it is the thing. We can use it as information, Let's move away from more discomfort and move towards less discomfort. There can also be systemic inflammation. Let's say someone has rheumatoid arthritis or some kind of systemic inflammatory condition, which plenty of people have. They might be globally tender, 
have a lot of myofascial pain, just their their soft tissues hurt, their joints hurt. That doesn't mean that they are being damaged by any of the movements. It just means they have pain. And again, we want to, of course, move towards things that are more comfortable rather than less comfortable. But that's a situation where that joint pain and discomfort, stiffness, perhaps, um, myofascial tenderness, muscle kind of, they might describe knots or muscle spasms. Those aren't damaging things. Those aren't things we're going to send them to the hospital over. It's just they had, they're at risk for having more or less of that discomfort during class. What about the concept of a repetitive use injury? How might that interact with a yoga practice? Yeah. A repetitive use injuries, a lot of people get that, like if they have thumb arthritis or tendonitis, or again, like the tennis elbow is a good example. And maybe they are doing work in their day-to-day life that um, they have to do a lot of repetitive movements with their hands and arms and things that might be irritating. That might lead them to irritation. So so someone might call that a repetitive strain injury type of thing. That's going to be more like a tendonitis. Again, it's a situation where it's not going to help us to push into that pain, but it's also not going to like wreck anything. It's just going to be more pain. And what that tells us is that that body part wasn't adapted for that type of use for, or for that volume of use. So the only kind of bummer about this phrase, repetitive strain injury, is that it implies that using the body leads to injury. And that's not the case. But using the body, say repetitively in a way that the body is not adapted for, does lead to injury. And that bit about adaptation is missing from some of our big cultural narratives about how the body works. And that's really led us into this tricky spot with thinking that movement causes the body to become weaker or using the body causes it to become weaker and become injured. And it's just the opposite. But we sometimes have to introduce movement and loading in ways that help the body to adapt so that we don't get injured with it. You know, again, this gets us into really complex stuff that most yoga teachers simply aren't trained in. Can yoga cause these types of repetitive use inflammatory responses? Absolutely. Especially if you're doing kind of the same movements over and over for movement variety, and especially in the context of not being adapted for it, maybe not having the strength to control those movements. Sometimes it's a volume issue. I like to use chaturanga as a good example of that. A lot of people, you know, blame chaturanga for their shoulder pain and things like that. And I think chaturanga is a really hard movement to do. It's hard on the shoulders, specifically because the shoulders aren't adapted to handle it. And they might do fine with five of those in a practice, but introduce them to 50 of those in a practice when we have a volume problem. It's not that you're doing it wrong necessarily, or you need better alignment necessarily. It's that the volume of this movement is too great and you're not adapted for it. And that's what leads us to injury. So this idea of the adaptive reality of tissues in the body is maybe at the root of what would be best for yoga teachers to really learn about so that they understand these things. So that when someone does have, say, a shoulder pain flare up with chaturanga, we can think a little bit more broadly about it. We don't need to just default to say, well, we need to work on alignment. Somehow our parts aren't stacked appropriately to make this safe. That's usually not the case. It's usually that, well, how many did we do? And is this person needing to build up their upper body strength to be able to handle that? That's usually the answer. 
in my experience. Because in the case of Chaturanga, you could separate your hands one inch, put them back one inch, bring your shoulder one inch this way, that way, that way. Nothing's going to make it or break it. Honestly, from an alignment standpoint, it's just a movement that the body is saying, you know what? You're doing this too much and I need help to be able to do it without pain. Yeah. And there may be some positions where certain bodies can handle more. Absolutely. And in, that's a great example of if we're stuck to a certain alignment concept here, then we're going to miss those ways of doing it that actually are more comfortable for this body. If I could move my hands out an inch, suddenly I'm free, my shoulder's free in a different way and it feels better. But if we're stuck to it looking a certain way, then we're, we're locked in. And we miss out on strengthening those other positions as well. Exactly. That, absolutely. I mean, push-ups in, in all... All the ways of pushing up are potentially useful things to do. A ch- chaturanga is just puts us in this one kind of bizarre to me position to push ourselves up off the ground. It's it's just one of many possible ways. Can you describe an approach to teaching asana that for you embodies the spirit of yoga and the spirit of keeping your students safe without the implication that we're responsible for that, but just the type of class that you believe is going to be a safe space? It's really all about, as the teacher coming into the practice, what do you understand to be what you're doing? What is it that you're doing? What is this about? Are we going to this fitness class or are we using asana in the service of yoga? And our approach will really change radically, I think, depending on our answer to that. The way of approaching asana that I think is lends itself most to inquiry and adaptability is a slow moving one. Now, maybe it's static. Maybe it's like static postures. That's not my style, but I think that's a way to slow down and really pay attention. And that is what's most useful. Slowing down so that we can pay close attention to what is happening in the body. How does it feel on the inside? Um, We're not trying to get anywhere. I like to tell my students, we're not getting anywhere except inside. That is where we're going. We're going inside to study, use it as study of our experience. And when a student asks the question, let's have a discussion and give them some guidance, give them maybe a couple things to try. How does it feel if you do it this way instead? How's it? What changes if you do it this way instead? And then you have a dialogue with the student that helps them come to a new understanding. You know, less is more. Some teachers are starting out with a really long list of this long list of asanas they want to get done in this class. Shorten that and really go into it with more quality versus quantity and use each one as a little inquiry and be willing to spend some time with it in dialogue with students so that they can go into it that way. You know, when students ask, well, where should I feel it? That's when this teacher is really well served by understanding those movements they're doing and what muscles produce those movements so they can tell the student, well, for example, this is a posture where we're doing hip extension and the muscles in charge of hip extensions are your gluteus maximus and your hamstrings. So that's where those are the muscles that should be contracting right now. That's really helpful information for students to know. But again, the teacher has to have some foundation in in really understanding anatomy and biomechanics for them to be able to provide that info. Yeah, I like that because it's not so much about where you should be feeling it, but here is what's happening in your body. Let's explore. Are you feeling it somewhere else? And if so, are there compensation patterns happening? Or is this just something about the way that your body is organized? And how does it feel to you? And is that a place where 
it's interesting or is it a place that you feel like you want to run away from and if if so how can we adjust so that you can get back to doing this in a way that is interesting for you maybe it's enjoyable maybe it's just intriguing but you don't feel averse to it yeah absolutely Libby, is there anything else that you want to share about safety and alignment before we wrap up? Alignment, I think, is very useful when it serves students' inquiry and their attention. It's training the attention. We can train attention on anything. We can train it on where are parts of our body, what's happening with our breath. We can train it in a variety of ways. Alignment is useful when we are using it to train the attention on our inner experience of this body, but not when we're using it to talk about safety. So I think alignment is fine if it's your jam, but let's talk about it as far as attention and and have some wiggle room around it, have some freedom to try it this way and that way and not be stuck to one way so that someone can find comfort and let it be about comfort rather than safety. And if we can start separating those things, I think we'll be moving in the right direction. Awesome. And if listeners want to find out more about learning from you and joining your membership Anatomy Bites, where should they go? They should go to anatomybites.com and come join the fun.